Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Hypergrowth Podcast. My name is Soham Moore. And I'm Nikhil Bose. In each episode, we talk to an individual that has created a unique mental model in which they make sense of the world. Our goal is to unpack and share some of these insights. Um, I guess I've always just wanted to know how to just, I wanted to understand things. In today's episode, we talked to design pioneer Don Norman on the importance of empathy in our daily lives. Don founded the domain of human-centered design and was an early pioneer in the development of user experience. He's also been a former vice president at Apple and a director of various design labs across the country. Most famously, he's been the author of books that every designer would have heard of, such as The Design of Everyday Things. So let's jump right into the episode. Dr. Norman, can you tell us a bit about your background? Started off as an electrical engineer, got a degree from MIT in electrical engineering, went to the University of Pennsylvania to do electrical engineering and to work with computers, but they didn't have any courses in computers in those days. And by accident, the Department of Psychology got a new chair who was a physicist, and um, he gave a talk to the engineering department, and I said, oh... So instead of building computers, maybe I could study the computer that's in the head. And, uh, and I went and talked to him, and he said, you don't know any psychology. That's wonderful. Good. You're in the department. <laughs> and, um, but so everything I've done has sort of been by accident. I never intended to go to graduate school. That's another story. But I ended up in graduate school. Um, and I ended up being a psychologist. I never thought of that. But I... <laughs> I've had the fortune of, first of all, just being curious about things, and second of all, the switch from engineering to psychology allowed me to take a lot of things I'd learned about servo mechanism, control theory, information processing, into psychology, where that was a very rare comment combination. And I was actually supported by a few people who understood that this was going to change things. And uh, so... I went from there, and I got my degree, and went and taught at Harvard for four or five years, and then I was told about this new university starting on the West Coast, and uh, and the person from one of these universities came and said, please come and and let us see whether you'd like to come join us, and that was at Irvine, and and a friend of mine said, no, 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 you want to go to San Diego. (laughs) So I came and I talked to Irvine, and I talked to San Diego, and San Diego just seemed more exciting because they already had really good people. No student had graduated yet, but they had Nobel Prize winners and they had uh, senior people and they were starting something called the Center for Human Information Processing. Hey, that's what I do, information processing. So, and what I've tried to do, though, is apply that to anything. And that information processing became cognitive psychology. And then I thought psychology was too restrictive. I wanted to bring in neuroscience and computer science and artificial intelligence. So we started cognitive science. And, um, and then I became more interested in how what I was learning was actually applied in the real world. And I got called in for particular, some applied problems. And I started consulting at Xerox and at Apple. And I realized I was getting more interested in that than I was in some of the technical journals. And so I took, I retired from UCSD. Um, 
they were running out of money, and so they made it easy to do an early retirement. So I retired and went up to Apple. And then I got to, I learned about business, and it was really academics and industry are very, very different. The time pressures are different. You do a lot of thinking in university, but there's very little time pressures. And in the companies, you're actually producing real things that make a difference for real people, but unbelievable time pressure. So there's often little time to think about it and think about the implications. And the combination to me has been very powerful. Because industry tells you what's really important, and academics tells me is trying to understand it and trying to advance. And that combination, and that's what's really propelled me ever since, is that going back and forth. So even here, that Pradeep Kosla, our chancellor, brought me back to start this design group, but we work with a lot of industry. Because what we're trying to do is take all the knowledge in from the university and apply it to real applied problems that make a difference. And I don't know, that's how I, I don't know what's in common with all that I've done, but that's kind of the philosophy I followed. Don Norman's clearly done a lot of firsts. From being an electrical engineer, he received a master's in mathematical psychology and eventually joined industry to become a user experience architect, which by the way, was the first ever use of the word user experience in a job title. Since then, he has been a pioneering figure in the development of a novel and emerging discipline, another first. That discipline is called cognitive science. And in between all of this, he started two well-known university design labs. Dr. Norman's ability to be adaptive and continuously shift his career paths and projects based on interests remains one of the key foundations to his prolific success. And part of it comes from the fact that unlike many of us, Don Norman isn't scared to enter uncertain terrain. And he chooses to pursue opportunity over certainty. Tony Robbins, a world-famous life coach to some of the most successful people in the world, has a quote that hits this point dead on. The quality of your life is in direct proportion to the amount of uncertainty you can comfortably deal with. Your work talks a lot about the human-centered design process. Can you describe this to some people who may not be as familiar with the process? Well, yeah, it's, it's a very straightforward framework. And it, it's, it, it, there's lots of places that write about it, um, but I'll give you my book. <laughs> so the Design of Everyday Things, the revised edition, which is a 2013 edition, uh, has at the end two chapters about applying design in, in, you know, in companies and products. And there I go through very explicitly the process, which isn't hard. But it's mainly, first of all, start by observing. But who am I building this for? And what task are they going to do? And I want to watch the activities they do because I want it to fit the activities they do. I do not want to ask people how they do things because the way people think they do things and the way they actually do them are different. So I want to watch what really happens. And not only can I make sure I therefore fit what they do, but sometimes I can say, gee, the way people are doing things is bizarre, and I could actually help them by making them, getting them to accomplish their duties much easier. That's step one. Step two, after all, I get all these observations, we sit down, we call it ideation, we try to figure out, okay, what do we think the real problems are? Not the problems people tell us about, because that's a symptom. But the real underlying problem, let's solve that. And then we try to figure out, well, so what are the possible solutions? And then because working with people still, uh, it, there's a science behind it, but we don't know enough to be 
to guarantee success, so we, we quickly whip up some way of testing. We call it rapid prototyping. But the important point is we want to be able to do this like in an hour. The traditional, if you go here to talk to the computer science students or electrical engineering students, they believe in that, but they say, but it'll take me six months to finish wiring it or to finish programming, and then I can test it. And I say, no, no, no. So I, I, was, I, I was helping a bunch of electrical engineering students, the ECE department, working on a project to do things for the blind and for the, sorry, for the elderly. And they were doing a, a shopping cart that would also help you it was like a walker with wheels. But when you came to a curb, it was dangerous. So they wanted to have a little camera that looked down and then gave a signal. And I asked them, well, have you tested to see if that works? Oh, we're starting to, to, to wire up the camera, and now we're still trying to write the software. And I said, no, test it. How do you do that? I'm still building it. Take your cell phone <coughs> and tape it to the bottom <laughs> and have the camera be where your camera will be and then get another cell phone or iPad you know, on the front, which is what the people will see. I mean, if, if you just think you could actually do remarkable things just by faking it, but that's how you learn. So, uh, but when you do when you do the test, this rapid prototype, it's not going to work quite the way you did it. So you go back and you rethink and you try it again. But each time you try it, you're learning more, so you can actually start building it more and more realistically, so that it actually works better. And pretty soon you can start putting code in, and pretty soon you can make sure it's actually real. That's the iteration. That's the iteration. The entire basis of human-centered design lies on thinking about people and putting them first, formalized in this term we call empathy. The notion of being empathetic has caught on fire recently, as the popularity of design thinking has vastly proliferated. But there's something truly important here. In today's world, we live in a vastly me-centric society, with modern technology supporting the increasing rise of narcissism. But the world doesn't simply work like that. In order to get ahead, you really have to do something that truly provides value for others. There's a famous quote from Henry Ford that goes like, if there is any one secret of success, it lies in the ability to get the other person's point of view and see things from that person's angle as well as from your own. Empathy is not only relevant for our daily interactions, but also large corporations like Microsoft have found it fundamental. Recently, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella released his first ever autobiography, Hit Refresh. The entire book details Nadella's core philosophy, which is built on empathy and understanding the needs of others. Nadella discusses how Microsoft, a company once criticized for a lack of innovation, has drastically grown over the past couple of years by doing one simple thing, opening its ears to the people around them. So it seems like the implications of human-centered design are fairly universal. Would you agree? I think that design is a way of thinking. And human-centered design is a way of thinking where we think about the person and we think about the real activities they're doing. And that could be applied to everything. It can be applied to how a company organizes its workforce. It can be applied to how you decide to spend the weekend. It can be applied to uh, how you interact with other people. Yes, it can be applied to everything. In fact, I believe it's so important, it really ought to be taught to all students in a university. I could teach the principles in like two lectures, but I would then like to have a, a couple of weeks where people go out and they try it and they all come back and say, oh, I used it when I was writing a shopping list and, uh, and I used it in this and I used it in that. And that's how everybody will learn, oh, gee, yes. 
So I think it should be applied to everybody. Stanford University is doing that. They're requiring all their students to take this basic course. And so, um, yes, it can be applied to everything. Simply put, human-centered design is a synthesis-driven, creative framework used to help people find direction in pretty much anything, whether it be a group project or even solving large-scale humanitarian problems. I'm a firm believer that design is nothing more than a way of thinking that revolves around understanding other people and thinking of them first. A good example of where empathy is rarely used is in our legal system. Did you know that recent reports from the Insurance Institute of Highway Safety have shown that for three out of every four states that have enacted a ban on texting while driving, texting-related casualties have actually increased? An obvious reason for this is people don't stop texting because of the law, but rather choose to text in a more sneaky and often hidden way. Instead, this law can be designed with a more empathetic solution. Perhaps we can have systems that disable phones when the car is in motion and allow for dictation during red lights. As the proliferation of connected systems increases, the intersection of ethics, technology, and law will have a lot more challenges to face, which empathy will play a large role in. And once again, a key to empathy is the ability to understand why people do things rather than what those things are. What do you think is the point of a university education? The most important thing that you learn in a university or that you should learn is how to think and how, how to learn. Because you're not going to learn everything you need in the university. And not only that, you may even learn things you need, but you won't remember it by the time you need it five years later. Uh, normally, people don't remember the day after the test, the final. So uh, what we need is, is way if people can say, I don't know what you're talking about, and, but they go off and they can teach themselves. And today that's so much easier than it ever was because you can find great video lessons on YouTube or other places. Um, and, but that's what we need to teach people so they can be lifelong learners and, and also good thinkers. This is one of our primary motivations for creating this podcast. One of the most fundamental ways to learn is through the experiences of others. Specifically, we want to understand the thought processes, mental frameworks, and experiences used to become better versions of ourselves. We're going to call these frameworks mental models. As important as they are, many of these mental models are not taught in class. Luckily, most of the work has been done for us. Various thought leaders, such as Don Norman, have pioneered their own way of thinking about the world. We want to aggregate their insights and create a toolbox of different models that we can use to make sense of this world. We'll call it the Hypergrowth Toolkit. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? When I decided to leave the university, I talked to a very famous management consultant. He gave me some interesting advice. He says, if you are happy in your current job, it's time to leave. And if the new job really worries you and you're not convinced that you can do it, then it's the right job. This may at initial glance sound a bit odd, but it's also something that is actually very common in human nature. What Don Norman is alluding to is the role of stressors in your environment. Stressors in this context are simply things that bring you discomfort or some sort of obstacle. Humans in general tend to benefit from the occasional stressors and shock. This property is fairly common with any system that has changed for time. Think of cities, cultures, innovations, and ideas. 
Constant stressors simply act to reinvigorate and make the system better as a whole. Think about weightlifting at the gym. By providing shock to your muscles, you're able to ignite their growth. Even when we talk about our immune system, the occasional shock simply makes it better at fighting disease in the long run. This is why being in an environment with constant stressors, such as the one Dr. Norman is alluding to, is essential to being in a constant state of growth. And when you're fully content with your job, it may just be because you have gotten used to it and it's failing to give you those much needed occasional stressors. For a final question, Dr. Norman, if you had to give one key piece of advice to your college-going self, what would it be? Always be learning. Always be observing the world and learning from your observations. And always admit when you're wrong and when you've done things that don't work well. I mean, my whole philosophy is that if I give a talk or write a paper and people come up to me and say, oh, that was wonderful, well, it's nice to hear, but it doesn't, I don't learn anything. If somebody comes up to me and argues with me and tells me I was wrong, I learn. <clears throat> and I like that if they're intelligent about it. Because uh, maybe they're wrong, but then it tells me that I didn't do a good job of explaining my point. And maybe they're right. And then, oh, okay, I better change what I'm doing. So uh, I just think you should always keep an open mind and always be experimenting and always be open to new adventures. Here, Dr. Norman makes a very important point, relevant to many people our age. How do we understand what's important in life? How do we understand which is the right path to pursue when there are many possible directions to go into? Thank you for joining this episode of Hypergrowth, where we began discussing Don Norman's life journey, went on to human-centered design, and ended off with a few pieces of advice from Don Norman himself. Don spoke at length about some key concepts in his personal philosophy, the value of empathy, the role of stressors, and finally the power of embracing uncertainty. Remember to join us for our second episode as we discuss quantum mechanics with some of the smartest researchers in the world and help to prove the saying, we are what we think. <laughs>